Heads up, this episode includes spoilers. 1975, a movie theater in the former Soviet Union. In the audience that day, the late Maya Turovskaya, one of the great Soviet film critics, who was there to check out a romantic historical melodrama called Yesenia. And according to modern-day scholar Masha Saleskina, Maya wasn't impressed. She went to see this film, and as she was watching it, she was just wondering, you know, what is this? You know, like, how can anyone watch it? But then, towards the end of the movie, Maya noticed something. A woman sitting next to her who had bags full of groceries uh, was crying so hard and she had makeup all over her face, smudged. Maya watched this woman weep through the credits. And? And so the, this film critic asked her, well, why are you crying? And she said, well, why aren't you crying? I feel this movie is about me. Maya found this perplexing because Yesenia wasn't a Russian movie. It wasn't even from an Eastern Bloc country. The movie this Soviet woman felt was about her had been made four years earlier in Mexico, where it had been a disappointing failure. Meanwhile, somehow in the USSR, it was on its way to becoming the biggest box office hit in Soviet history. And actually, one of the biggest non-English language hits in the history of cinema. I'm Rico Galliano, and from the curated streaming service Mubi, welcome back to the Mubi podcast. Mubi is the best place to see beautiful, hand-picked cinema from around the globe. On this show, we tell you the stories behind those films and any other movies with stories worth telling. This first season, we're calling Lost in Translation. Every week, we learn about a different international culture through the lens of a movie they loved. Specifically, a film that was a huge cultural phenomenon in just that one country. Which brings us to the strange tale of Yesenia. Almost no one who's seen this movie will call it some grand work of art. It's obscure even for some experts on Latin American cinema. I own, I kid you not, 2,000 original DVDs of Mexican film. And I have never seen this one before. That's Washington University's Ignacio Sanchez Prado. I sent him a DVD of the movie, so don't worry, he's seen it now. And he is one of many people around the world I spoke with to learn more about a film that so many people saw but so few seem to know much about. And to try to figure out how this, of all films, connected with tens of millions of Soviets. It's a tale of two very different countries and one movie. We're about to translate Yesenia. To understand this movie, first you gotta understand its screenwriter, whose career is a story unto itself. Her name was Yolanda Vargas Dolce. She was really very attractive. I mean, not only physically, but her personality was very strong and very interesting. Everybody wanted to speak with her and she had a strong leadership. That's one of Yolanda's five children, Emoe de la Para. Emoe grew up to be a famous actor, and she thinks she knows why she chose that career. Her family, she says. We were, we were also in fantasy. For me, that was the normal thing, to be in fantasy. School and all that, 
perhaps it was not the, the real thing. The real thing was imagination. And I suppose that is why I dedicate my life to acting and directing theater. And it's easy to see why Yolanda Vargas Dolce would want to create a fantasy world for herself and her family. Because when she was a kid in the 1920s, real life was tough. When my mother was born, five years later, her parents divorced. And at the beginning of the 20s, being divorced was something very hard. Her mother started working. They were quite poor as well. And at some point, my mother went to um, a singing career. Yeah, that's a teenage Yolanda you're listening to right now, singing with her sister. But glamorous as it sounds, it didn't pay. She had to work a side gig at a pharmacy. And when she met the love of her life, Guillermo de la Para, her career was actually a liability. My father came for a provincial family and they didn't want my father to marry her because she was a singer. And it was associated almost with prostitution and things like that. Prostitution? Well, really? Yes, but they, it's, she's a singer. How are you going to marry a singer? Luckily, Yolanda's personality won them over. And in any case, she didn't stay a singer for long because one of the things she and Guillermo bonded over was another part-time gig she'd taken on as a teenager and fallen in love with, writing stories. Specifically, writing stories for comic books. Although comic isn't exactly the right word. Not really comic. Comic is a word that... Um, Comic is more directed at children. This was love stories, love stories directed to grown-ups. And in mid-century Mexico, grown-ups were reading these kind of graphic love stories everywhere. In the markets, in the supermarket, in the buses, at school, in every house, in every house. Some of them were read hiding because they were supposed not to be a very cultural literature. But in fact, everybody read it, even though some of them denied it. Yolanda and Guillermo churned out graphic stories, like nonstop. Since they met all the dates they have, they dedicate the part of the dates to write the stories in napkins in a restaurant. <laughs> so This is before they, they were married? Before they were married, they began to work together. When they were like on dates? <laughs> <laughs> During their dates, they started doing stories and writing them down in napkins. Emma says at first, her parents worked for competing publishing houses until they decided to form their own, called Editorial Argumentos, at which point Yolanda Vargas Dolce became comic royalty. Well, she was known as the Reina del Folletín, the queen of comic melodrama. That's Roberto Carlos Ortiz. He's an independent scholar specializing in Latin American culture, and he says Yolanda's work generally kept to a certain formula. They were little melodramatic stories. And so you had, like, usually a female protagonist who went through all the suffering and drama that you would expect in a film melodrama, but it was in comic book form. And also, surprisingly often, that protagonist was from a minority race. For Yolanda, that just magnified a major theme of her work, something she'd experienced herself. 
a class system that tries to keep people apart. Most of the Yolanda Vargas Dulce stories are structured around that, about conflict between classes with the added element of race and ethnicity. She also had a, a storyline that was like a Madame Butterfly style story, another one that had to do with the times of slavery. Of course, today, many would call that formula problematic. But back then, people found her comics irresistible. I know they were very popular, and not only were they popular in Mexico, they were also exported. For example, I'm Puerto Rican, and I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother used to read the series. At that moment, I'm talking about the 60s, 70s, that was a large audience. Every week, the sales were about one million, so it reached a lot of people. A lot, a lot. At one point, Yolanda was the most read female writer in the country, and she was pumping out dozens of titles. But she's best remembered for a series of comics called Lágrimas, Risas y Amor. These were stories that she had already told in the 1940s and 50s, and she retold them in the 60s. And that's the version that most people remember. And that's where Yesenia comes from. All right, Yesenia. It's set in the Mexico of the 1860s, and it's got all the hallmarks of a classic Yolanda Vargas Dolce story, including a crazy complicated plot. Right. Uh, so. Okay, let me try to to simplify because it's a it's a rather long story. But so Jesenia tells the story of a young woman that is described in the story as being Hitana, a gypsy, uh, which is a term that is problematic nowadays. But that's the term that is used in the story. So Jesenia falls in love with a man who is in the military, a captain. But unfortunately, Jesenia thinks that the military man abandoned her. In, in the meantime, he thinks that she abandoned him. And so she re- he returns to, oh, see, see, it's a mess. <laughs> it really isn't easy, but allow me to give it a shot. You probably got the basic idea. Like in the movie, which you're hearing right now, in the comic, Yesenia is a member of a proud tribe of itinerant Roma people. They make their living busking and dancing for tips, reading palms, that kind of thing. They're disdained by quote-unquote respectable society, but Yesenia doesn't really give a damn. She's a smart spitfire, happy to tell off the racist gents who always seem to be hitting on her. One day, though, she meets that upstanding military captain, Osvaldo, who falls for her despite her low station, so much so, he agrees to let her father marry them according to the ways of her own people. Everything seems great until the captain suddenly ordered away on an emergency mission. He sends a message telling Yesenia he'll be back, but it's intercepted by bandits. So Yesenia thinks she's been abandoned. Meanwhile, Osvaldo's grandfather tells her their Roma marriage ceremony isn't even considered legal. I would like to be wrong, he says. You're a good girl. But there are laws that can't be changed. And we could spend the rest of the episode on the twists that ensue, so let's just say surprise, they end up together. After multiple almost marriages, a revelation about Yesenia's own birth, and at least one gratuitous brawl. 
Yesenia was a hit as a comic. And if you think it sounds like the making of a good soap opera, back in the 60s, there was someone else who felt the same way about Yolanda's stories, a Mexican TV star named Silvia Derbez. I was about 10 years old, and she arrived at the house. I don't know how she managed to know uh, our address, but she wanted to speak with my mother because she wanted the stories to be done on TV and she wanted to be the star. And my mother said, I'm sorry, I don't think it's going to work. What are you talking about? And she said, well, I think that it can work very well. Why don't we try? They tried and succeeded. First with a massive hit telenovela version of Yolanda's story, Maria Isabel. Well, the first time that she saw Marisabel acted by this um, excellent actress, she began to cry because it was like seeing her characters alive, moving, talking, dressed like the characters. And well, she was very moved, very, very moved. And describe what happens to her career at that moment, once Maria Isabel comes out. When Maria Isabel came up, it came another one and another one and another one, all till the day of her death, I mean, They do it and do it and do it again. She's not exaggerating. Yolanda, the queen of comic book melodramas, also became the queen of telenovelas, the multi-platform Shonda Rhimes of her day. She adapted tons of her stories for TV. Over the decades, they've been remade multiple times. And one of the most popular, you guessed it. Yesenia is one of the best known characters from the Lagrimas y Risas comic book. But then in 1970, they made a telenovela adaptation starring a sex symbol from the time that is named Fanny Cano. And that made the story even more popular because she became very popular as Yesenia. Her hairstyle became famous, her makeup style became famous. The telenovela adaptation, that's when it really became a big hit, which in turn leads to the movie. Of course, a movie adaptation. Why not? Everything Yolanda touched seemed to turn to gold. But we already know, somehow, somewhere between the little and the big screen, Yesenia lost its mojo. And when I first researched the movie, I thought its downfall might have begun with the choice of director. This is a scene from the 1966 film Santo versus the Martian Invasion. In it, a group of Martians who look like half-naked Fabios warn humanity via television that Earth will be annihilated. And the only guy who can stop them? The masked Mexican wrestling hero, Santo. It's a pretty wonderful pulp flick and about the farthest thing imaginable from a period romance. Yet the same guy who directed it, Alfredo Bicrevena, who did a bunch of these wrestling movies, by the way, also directed Yesenia. <laughs> Believe it or not, though, I'm told he wasn't a bad choice. Alfredo Crevena, the director, was actually born in Germany. That's humanities professor Ignacio Sanchez Prado again, the guy I sent the DVD to. He may be new to Yesenia, but he's well-versed in Crevena, who he respects as a serious workhorse. He left Germany because of the rise of Nazism. He lands in the Warner Brothers in California for a couple of years, and then he comes to Mexico, and he starts making work in Mexican cinema. And this guy, you know, he makes 
150 or something movies throughout his career. And he has all kinds of really interesting movies. So he writes movies for Cantinflas. He did a, a wrote a version of Santa, which is a very important literary adaptation. And especially in the latter half of his 40 plus year career, Cravena was known as a solid director of melodramas. He really embodies himself the, the historical range of popular Mexican cinema between the 40s and the 90s in a way that you would be very hard-pressed to find another director doing this. Wow. He's got like a polymath, basically, genrically, anyway. Yeah, and you know, he does things, you know, some of the films are sexploitation films, others are horror films. He has everything. In fact, Ignacio gives Yesenia pretty high marks for a movie that, after all, was never aiming for art status. It's an excellent melodrama, I think. It has a very good art direction and... The kind of acting is like top-level telenovela acting. So it's the kind of acting you will see a lot in Mexican television. Which makes sense because a lot of the actors came from television. In fact, Jorge Lavat, who played Yesenia's heartthrob captain in the telenovela, reprised his role for the film. Mañana, al caer la tarde, te esperaré en el río. Mañana, en la tarde, en el río. But he did it without his TV co-star, Fanny Cano who got sick at the last minute and was replaced as Yesenia by one Jacqueline Ander. Which made me think, maybe that doomed the movie? Ander taking the place of the sex symbol who'd created the character? Ignacio says, not so fast. So she's a very big actress in television in particular. She has been in some of the most iconic telenovelas of history, right? So she will be a front and center person, just like Jorge Labat, the male protagonist, is also a fairly well-known. In fact, Jacqueline Andere has film credits Fanny Cano probably envied, like this one. That's her in the 1962 classic The Exterminating Angel, directed by none other than Luis Buñuel. The New York Times once ranked it one of the thousand greatest movies ever made. So what did finally tank Yesenia in its home country? Ignacio says maybe it wasn't the movie so much as the Mexican film industry itself. To be quite honest, this is not the time in which a film would be as impactful. Yesenia hits theaters in 1971, a moment when Mexican cinema went from a private studio system to a state-run one, focused more on supporting auteur filmmakers than the country's commercial industry the whole Mexican film business changed. So the result is that in 71 to 76, it becomes very respected in art film festivals, and it creates a new generation of filmmakers that, you know, became the leading figures in authorial cinema at the time. At the same time, it really does give a lot of control to the state. They give a lot of the resources to foreign productions. Mexican productions start struggling more. They were struggling especially against a wave of competition from Hollywood films, which were making a comeback after World War II when they weren't as widely distributed in Mexico. So... Mexican films were not doing as well as they were one or two decades before. And Mexican films were, were competing with American films that began to be very powerful. So a lot of people saw the movie, but not as much as they saw the soap opera. And it was a kind of disappointment for my parents. But someplace that wasn't awash in Hollywood movies, where world cinema surprisingly had a way more even playing field, the Soviet Union. Just one of many reasons five years later, Yesenia would get a second life 
Behind the Iron Curtain. That story coming up in just a minute. Stay with us. Mubi is a curated streaming service, production company, and film distributor, a place to discover, discuss, and celebrate beautiful cinema. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked by our team of curators. From brand new work by emerging filmmakers to masterpieces by cinema's greatest icons, there is always something new to uncover on the platform. Throughout this first season of the podcast, our online film magazine Notebook is publishing a complimentary piece alongside every episode in a series called Movie Podcast Expanded. This week, film professor and historian Masha Salaskina adds to her commentary that you're going to hear later in this episode, discussing her love for international films growing up in the Soviet Union in the late 70s and early 80s. It's very cool. Also, if this episode has sparked your interest in Mexican cinema, Mubi has just launched a brand new Spanish language podcast showcasing in-depth conversations between leading figures in the Latin American film world. Produced in partnership with La Corriente del Golfo, the first episode of Mubi podcast Encuentros features Gael Garcia Bernal and Carolina Sanin discussing the relationship between film, acting, and life itself. So... Finish this episode, then check out Masha Salaskina's article on The Notebook at mubi.com slash notebook. And if you speak Spanish, listen and subscribe to Mubi Podcast Encuentros, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, to stream the best of cinema, simply head over to mubi.com to start watching. So it was 1975, four years after Yesenia's release, and Yolanda Vargas Dolce wasn't thinking much about the movie anymore even when she started getting word that it seemed to be doing pretty well in the Soviet Union. I mean, she knew it. She, of course, was informed about it. But she needed to live it in order to believe it. And Yolanda didn't really live it till later that decade, when she and Emoe took a trip. She went to the Soviet Union. I went with her, just a tourist trip. It was 70-something. And she realized at that moment that the movie was so well known because as soon as someone said she's the author of Yesenia, well, it was a crowd. She couldn't move. The crowd came and asked for autographs. She, she said, why? Why do they like that much Yesenia? Good question, which we'll try to answer in a minute. But first, I have another one. How they even see Yesenia? I'm an American Gen Xer. I grew up during the last stages of the Cold War. So I pictured the USSR as this walled-off place, purposely keeping out world culture so the government could make its own communist world. But like a lot of things I thought I knew back then, not so. Oh, foreign films were a regular part of the diet. Uh, I mean, hundreds of them were shown. That's film historian Ian Christie. He's an expert on Soviet cinema, and he spent a lot of time there back in the day. He says the Soviet movie agency Goskino wasn't at all averse to importing films from foreign lands, especially certain foreign lands. They did have their preferences. I mean, France, of course, had a very close relationship with um, the Soviet Union, partly because there was a 
massive French Communist Party. And there were many, many links, cultural links at all levels between France and the Soviet Union. And, and Italy too. Italian films were widely seen in the Soviet Union, especially by filmmakers. If you really want to understand what's happening with people like uh, Tarkovsky and many of his generation, you have to keep remembering that they had seen films by Fellini and by Buñuel. And speaking of Buñuel, yes? Mexico was considered to be an okay place because it had a revolution. In fact, Latin American cinema in general was a Soviet favorite. The USSR in the 50s and especially 60s uh, had very long-standing relationships with the Mexican and Argentinian film industries. You met Masha Salaskina at the beginning of this episode. She's a film studies professor at Concordia University in Montreal. The Mexican and Argentinian films were shown in the Soviet Union to great success. Argentinian cinema is a little bit less kind of internationally recognized, but in that period there were a lot of especially musical films coming out of Argentina and they were also immensely popular. Especially films starring one Lolita Torres who sang and danced her way through a series of glittering musicals from the 50s that were shown in the USSR well into the 60s. This is a tune from a flick called The Beautiful Lie. And I don't remember, it was sometime in the 60s, maybe 66, uh, that Lolita Torres came to the Soviet Union and again, you know, found millions and millions of admiring fans. Go ahead and search for Lolita Torres clips on YouTube. Even today, half the comments are in Russian. So why was Latin American cinema so particularly embraced? Masha actually chalks it up as much to the page as the screen. In the late 60s and early 70s, Latin American literature became uh, extremely popular in the Soviet Union. And it was a very literary culture. Everyone read. So, you know, when uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or some of the earlier Latin American authors became very popular, they were read by everyone. So you think that might have had some impact? People were familiar with Latin American literature, yeah. so it's like, oh, now I'm seeing it brought to life. Yeah, yeah. And it was also in the Soviet Union, and at that time, it wasn't quite, again, as differentiated where you would think, well, highbrow literature versus lowbrow entertainment. It really wasn't as clearly marked. But... If Soviets had been fans of Latin American books and movies for years, if millions already flocked to Lolita Torres flicks in the 60s, what made millions more flock specifically to Yesenia in 75? One reason? Good timing. In the sense that the 70s in the USSR were a bad time. This is Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev in a televised address on New Year's Eve 1970. At one point, he says the country is greeting the new year in, quote, good humor. Ian Christie says that wasn't true. There'd been a lot of liberalization in the early 60s under Khrushchev. But uh, things had gone too far for some of the party bosses and the, the old guard. And there was a real crackdown at the end of the 60s. So as we enter the 70s, things are quite sort of buttoned down in the Soviet Union. Old Brezhnev, who's taken over, is, uh, well, it's often known nowadays as the era of stagnation. And indeed, things were stagnating. 
While the rest of the world was grooving on the hyper-colored late 60s and early 70s, Ian says a lot of Soviets were painfully aware their lives were comparatively gray. Which, of course, means that, you know, movies, the biggest form of recreation in the Soviet Union, really, were very much in demand. I mean, there were enormous audiences flocking to the cinemas in every single part of the Soviet Union. And foreign movies, in particular, were absolutely in demand because they were the only things that gave you a sense of the outside world. In fact, at one point during Brezhnev's regime, Soviets were going to the movies more often than people anywhere else in the world. And half the movies screened in the country were foreign. The less gray, the better. There he is. Come, sing and conquer. By far, the biggest source of foreign films uh, right throughout the Soviet era was Indian cinema. The single most popular Indian film in the Soviet era, as far as I know, is a film that I bet you've never heard of, let alone seen. It's called Disco Dancer. <laughs> is it about a disco dancer? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, that would do it. My theory about that is that they probably hadn't seen Saturday Night Fever. And I, I suspect that there was a huge audience in the Soviet Union that knew about disco, but they hadn't seen the kind of films that we had ready access to. So colorful Bollywood disco musicals, or say sweeping historical romances set in Mexico? In the era of stagnation, a lot of Soviets were hungry for these kind of flicks. And Yesenia also had something else going for it. The USSR didn't really care about importing hits. They were all about the bottom line. So Soviet Union was interested in buying films as cheaply as possible. They were looking for films they, they knew would be popular with the audiences so they could make money. Films that would not be too expensive. Hence, often older films and often not the most um, popular films <laughs> necessarily, right, in the country of origin. Yesenia was a four-year-old flop. So the price tag was minimal. Films for import were uh, bought without royalties, meaning that uh, they would pay a flat sum. So, for example, Yesenia was bought for 20,000 U.S. dollars. Uh, and that's it? And that's it. And they had an agreement for a seven-year run, but it did not specify how many times, you know, how many locations. Uh, very often also the, even the seven-year period was not uh, respected. Basically, uh, they would show every foreign film until the actual print would completely be torn to shreds. In other words, there was nothing keeping the government from showing Yesenia a lot. And they definitely got their money's worth. So you can imagine if they pay $20,000 for this film, and in the first year alone, right, they sold 91 million tickets. Wow, a lot of rubles. <laughs> yeah, and that's just, again, and that was just the first year. It was also the kind of film, and that I do remember from my own childhood, that people would go see when they're on vacation. Because the movie theaters were everywhere, including like small film clubs that could be in any small village, right? So when you'd go on vacations, whether it's to the seaside or in the mountains, they would always have a movie theater there. It's funny, you think of beach reading, so this was beach viewing. Yes, it was absolutely beach viewing. Actually, Masha says the film made most of its cash in rural areas, far from big cities like Moscow, where the Soviet cinema elite 
were not exactly champions of this movie. And I know that from reading the letters of the viewers, because the film, when it uh, became such a huge box office success, actually provoked a fury of critics, kind of the lamentations of the critics on the demise of Soviet moviegoing uh, tastes. And in return, people would write letters accusing the critics of being snobs, of not understanding the richness and the emotional life of the audiences. And, you so know. The, so the critics are kind of saying, this is, we can do better than this. For God's sake, Tarkovsky is putting out movies right now, and yet everybody's going to see this lowbrow movie from Mexico. Yeah, no, it became really kind of a, a poster child for, again, sort of uh, all that Soviet audiences want to see are tasteless melodramas and genre films. What happened to the great traditions of Soviet cinema? Why don't people want to see this? But Ian Christie says against films like Yesenia, great Soviet cinema didn't really have a chance. Because overall, there was a, an enormous appetite for romance. I mean, the one thing that Soviet cinema was not delivering was a sort of sense of romance. There were lots of inspirational stuff dealing with, with social issues in very engaging ways, but they were not delivering that sort of sense of romance. People didn't, you know, get uh, swept away by a gypsy uh, lover or anything like that. that. That did not happen. Why not? Well, there's a kind of hangover from the Stalin period. Most of the films were still a bit didactic, or they were harping on about the war, the Great Patriotic War. And you can see that at the beginning of the 80s, there's a realization in Goskino that they've got to deliver a more popular kind of film. A kind of film, in fact, that Yolanda Vargas Dolce might have been proud of. In 1980, just as Yesenia was ending its several-year run in Soviet cinemas, director Vladimir Menshov released the landmark Soviet movie Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. The central character is Katerina, who after a lifetime of romantic disasters, ends up single but successful, a factory executive. Then, on a train, she meets a worker named Gosha. There's an instant spark, but Gosha doesn't think relationships work when a woman earns more than her husband, so she lies to him about her job. When he finds out, she almost loses him, but at the end, his love for her is too strong to ignore. She looks at him with tears in her eyes. I've been waiting for you for so long, she says. Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears was a, an almighty breakthrough. I remember being shown it in Moscow, at a viewing at Goskino, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Uh, you know, it, it really did seem to be, um, well, just extraordinary. I remember, you know, saying to my interpreter, we'd never seen anything like this before. <laughs> what, what about it was so amazing to you? Well, I suppose the focus is really is on people achieving happiness through relationships. It's a focus on personal life. And it was seen as a signal that you could actually focus the entire film on people's relationships. Instead of what? Well, instead of their social duty. And Ian won't say Soviet films like this became possible only because of the success of Yesenia, but he says it sure helped point the way. Once again, critics generally weren't fans of Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. Once again, it was a hit anyway. In the U.S., it actually won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. 
And here's my favorite part. Guess where it also landed. Growing up in Mexico City like I did, you would see, for example, the film Bosco Doesn't Believe in Tears, which is a famous Soviet melodrama. This played on television all the time. It was on television maybe once a month. Yeah, Ignacio came across it all the time in Mexico. Among its fans, his own single mother. What could she have possibly seen in it? This movie set in an utterly different country on the other side of the planet. Maybe the same thing that Soviet woman wept over in Yesenia. A society that tries to keep people apart and women who hope for the best anyway and persevere. I think she saw a movie about herself. That's the movie podcast for this week. Follow us to hear more deep dives into movies that were singular hits in a single place. Next week, we learn about the 1997 film that changed the way China celebrates the holidays. There's a couple of rituals that are associated with the Chinese New Year. But starting after 1997, a new ritual emerged, which was the whole family goes to the theater and watches the new Feng Xiaogang film. This episode was hosted, written, and cut by me, Rico Galliano. Jackson Musker is our booking producer. Our engineer was Andy Carson. Mastering by Stephen Colon. Martin Ostwick composed and performed all the music. The show is executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, FHRL, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka for Mubi. If you're digging the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It'll make it easier for others to find us. And if you want to send us your thoughts, well wishes, or just to chew me out for butchering the pronunciation of your language, I do my best, but I'm sure it's happened. Our email is podcast at movie.com. And for an ever-changing collection of carefully handpicked films, from iconic directors to emerging auteurs, subscribe to Mubi at movie.com. Till next week, it's a big world. Watch globally. Watch globally.